0: Fika with Annika. The word fika is used as both a noun and a verb and is derived from the Swedish word for coffee. The Swedish coffee break is a moment to literally leave work behind. Taken at three in the afternoon, it's not a strategy for multitasking or for fitting in another mini-meeting. It's a chance to relax in the company of colleagues or friends. The key is to pause your day. So, brew up some coffee, grab a seat, and embrace fika. So, welcome everyone. It's Wednesday afternoon, and I hope you uh, pull up your favorite easy chair and a nice cup of brew. And um, ready to listen to my uh, guest here in the studio. I have Mike Machado. He's an Anza resident. Uh, Mike Machado owns his own um, engineering company. He's on the board of directors of the uh, ANSA Electric Co-op. And that's all I really know about him for now, but I think maybe at the end of the hour, we'll know a lot more about Mike Machado. So with that said, welcome in. And uh, there you go. Take it away.
1: Thank you very (laughs) much. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. really uh, like the studio and... I'm a big fan, of course, of the radio station, and um, I hope, wish and hope it all the success in the world.
0: We're all trying really hard, and well, I think,
1: uh, I think yeah. you do a great job. Really, <laughs> if you want you. to know the truth, I mean, I I know how hard it is to get these kinds of things started, and and um, the work and the effort that has to go into it.
0: Right.
1: So I, I'm no stranger to that, and. Uh, I can certainly appreciate everything that uh, all you folks have done to make it a success.
0: Thank you. I'll take any compliment I can get, so and, I really appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Um, now, yeah. I know you from several years back uh, when I was involved with uh, Mountain Communities of Resilience, the MCOR group up here, and we were trying to uh, to work with uh, emergency preparedness and just having the comu- community be aware that if, uh, you know, there's a breakdown or there's a, um, you know, riots in the street or earthquake or fires that, you know, to be ready and and so on. Uh, You had taken it uh, from a different approach. I think uh, you were looking at it more from working with the the authorities on putting it together rather than being a a grassroots organization like I was involved with. So what's your experience with uh, emergency preparedness in this area?
1: Well... hands of disaster preparedness used to be a mounted rescue team back in the 1980s and um, they were basically there was about 25 uh, horseback riders that uh, had a search and rescue unit and then in the early part of the 1990s that kind of disbanded and so they were uh, looking for, you, looking to expand into actual disaster preparedness. And so I became the, um, the uh, director of that in 1993, and then uh, I've been responsible for that uh, up until just last year. And the Lions Club is responsible for it now. But <clears throat> I got into it in the 1980s because my company... Uh, was a U.S. federal contractor to, for the U.S. Forest Service. And when Ronald Reagan became president, uh, he took civil defense and converted it to the Office of Emergency Services. And the, the program that he had originally or his administration had originally promoted was that a, an organization that is volunteers that you can assemble that their day-to-day jobs fit into a disaster preparedness role. Those are the people you want to bring into your organization. Because if they're doing it every day, then they're not getting prepared for something that may never happen. disaster preparedness is kind of funny. People are only into it when there's a disaster. They don't really... um, Uh, you know, they're not really um, that interested in it, you know, in their day-to-day life, so to speak. So it's very difficult to hold on to volunteers for it. But it is easy to assemble companies and organizations that do that kind of stuff all the time, especially in the construction industry. The ability for us to respond, especially in ANZA, because we are so we would be mostly isolated if we were to have a national or statewide emergency we would have to rely upon our contracting forces here to put our infrastructure back together to probably uh, assist with rescue operations and those those types of things we would not be able to rely on on forces from from uh, Temecula or, or other communities so when we, when we actually incorporated Disaster Preparedness, we had about 22 of the local businesses that are actual members of it. And they um, range everywhere from carpenters to plumbers. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> and that's, that's kind of the way it was uh, for many, many, many years. The cooperation with the local agencies, they're not really… Uh, we used to belong to the MEMSCOM group, which is a mountain a mountain rescue, but when you're talking about um, like assistance to, to federal or state forces, unless you are part of that program, you, it's very difficult for you to be able to… Uh, to do your job, basically, and I've always had the impression that if you you want your volunteers to do something, you've got to give them a job to do. You can't just hope they're going to show up if you have an emergency. So when you have fires and you have floods and things like that, uh, you need to put those people to work, you know, for what what you can, that they're qualified to do. So in the early 1990s, when we had just the one engine company, uh, in which we still do, they it was manned by one or two people, which was the only protection we had, really, back then. And um, we had Station 53, but that's 20 minutes away, and then Station 30 is about, about the same. So when they'd have traffic accidents and things, we would dispatch disaster preparedness folks to do traffic control and and assist with that emergency to support.
0: Okay, and uh, this was obviously back in the '80s, and this was before cell phones. Oh
1: so, yeah, this is, so this is dispatching
0: early, a I mean, you didn't Early dis- part of
1: the 1990s. Okay. It was all done by radio communications that came out of the Paris Command Center. Okay. Yeah, they had. See, we had a we had a very large. Volunteer force here, the Anza Volunteer Fire Company. In fact, the the Anza Parade actually was was started to support that Volunteer Fire Company. So that goes back. uh, The Volunteer Fire Department actually goes back to the late 1950s. Gotcha. Right after we had electrification, we got electrification in 1953, and it was pretty much we were we were we had. A lot of the territory covered by 1959, and so the volunteer fire company, I believe, was be, was started between 1958 and 1962, right around in there. Okay. In the 90s, they had 35 members. We had two engines, uh, we had two water tenders, and uh, and we had two and we had a squad. So besides the state responsibility of 3162, which back in those days, 3162 was fairly famous because it was the only fire engine on the mountain. Oh. So when it rolled to a fire, everybody thought that was pretty cool because that was the state engine 3162. The Anza volunteers were, they called it station 29, which, which is really, that's what that is down there, is station number 29. And so they would roll with, with, uh, with the state, you know, on, on accidents, brush fires, and all all sorts of things. And so every year we'd have the Anza uh, Fourth of July parade, and and it featured uh, primarily the fire department. So we would have engines and fire equipment that would come from all over the place to come up here and.
0: It must have been spectacular. It was
1: spectacular. We actually had a, a snorkel. A, one of the first snorkel trucks delivered to the city of Carlsbad came up here, which is a 100-foot snorkel. Oh, my God!
0: One gosh. of the
1: first ones at, in California, and they brought that truck up here one year. I think in, in 19... Um, it would have been 1982, or... Because I had just moved here when they, when they had brought that. Thing up here, the U.S. Forest Service uh, used to put six or seven engines in that in that parade because, of course, they had the U.S. Forest Service as the largest complement of firefighting equipment, you know, you know, of any uh, any resource up here, and you know, including all the forest because we're surrounded by the San Bernardino National Forest. And then uh, the California Department of Forestry would would bring. Uh, the the engines from 53 and 28 uh, Sage and and all those they would come for that event as well. One time in the later part of the 1980s, I mean we put everything in there. They they uh, we put bulldozers in there, we put squad units in there, we put volunteer hand crews <coughs> in there. I mean if it if it fought fires, it was in that parade. <laughs> Except for air, aircraft, we couldn't afford to put aircraft out okay. there. But. Anything else that moved or talked, we put in that parade to show um, what we could do in a state of emergency. And people loved it. there was a couple of times we had over 5,000 people come to that parade. Oh my goodness just to see this armada of firefighting equipment. Wow. So it was, it was quite a um, it, was, it was quite a big show. And then you know, as the as the years go on, things things change. The cooperation between the departments and the and civilian corps and, and volunteers has changed. Now, since two thousand and twelve, we do not uh, California no longer has volunteer firefighting program. All the volunteer firefighters are gone. So, what was
0: the thinking behind that? Why would they drop volunteers? It was
1: it, it was it was a union issue. There was a union chief named Fox, and he um, said that volunteer volunteers were too expensive. The insurance was too expensive, and that they were not effective. And
0: what's your thought on that?
1: I he's he's a union boss. I'm a volunteer.
0: Uh,
1: okay. That's where that. that okay. went. We fought pretty hard against that when when Jeff Stone. Became the supervisor because um, two of the supervisors, John Benoit and uh, or John Benoit was a state senator then, and um, and one of the other state senators was adamantly opposed to that, and um, apparently we could not get Jeff Stone to to um, see our point of view, so they disbanded the volunteer fire companies. Okay. So it was. Um, they're paying the price for that, today, or the, the taxpayers are paying the price for that. Firefighters get paid overtime, and when you go to these long, some of these campaign fires, like we used to go on to, they'll go on for a month, and you're on the clock 24 hours a day when those things occur like that. But besides the money, the the cost of it, the escalating cost of fighting fires. Fighting vegetation fires is the human um, aspect of it because without those forces, uh, you really are very limited on what you can actually do uh, to stop a wildland fire. CAL FIRE, which they that's what the California Department of Forestry is now called, CAL FIRE, and they have about 6,200 employees to cover the state of California. There is no possibility that they could actually defend California if you had more than two fires in the state. So you're relying on city agencies and the U.S. Forest Service to pick up that shortfall uh, if they can. And the only problem with that, if you live in rural America, there's only certain types of engines you can use on wildland fires. Structure, Structure engines don't. Work very well, and they're not four-wheel drive. So you, there's a lot of logistical issues involved in it um, that we've argued about and complained about, and just basically have not been able to um, make any headway with with uh, getting those things corrected. So. What we used to have and what we have today are not the same thing. So.
0: Well, emergency situations aren't just wildfires. There's also um, flooding. I know that and uh, roads up here wash out. We're about to they have do. a rain event here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's all part and parcel of the emergency preparedness also.
1: It is. But you can't get permission to do anything about it. Uh, but wait, what I are give, you saying? We can't well, get... I'll give you an example. Batista Canyon, it's been washed out. We had a fire there this year. They couldn't get the fire apparatus up the road because there's no road anymore. It washed out last February. They've not fixed that road. That's a county responsibility road. They have not fixed that road because they don't have the resources to fix it. And it's too expensive. If that was back in the 1990s when you, when we had volunteer force say say like of you know, disaster preparedness we could we could put we had eight um, engineering contractors between here and Hemet that could have put that road back together and they would have done it very you know economically and we used to do that when we lost Mitchell up here uh, our company fixed that SNK has fixed stuff for the state and for the county, road issues, and and some of the other contractors that are not here anymore, were also, all were instrumental in keeping our road system working, but we, we're not allowed to do that anymore. Um, we had this one incident this last year where a gentleman lost, lost his bridge to his house, and the water, the bridge actually, collapsed in the stream and the water made a right turn and headed right into his house. We had to go out there and recover that. But fish and game and the and fish and game and the county of Riverside said, No, you can't recover that. Because it's in a stream bed. Oh. If you look at how our, our emergency systems are are designed, they're not designed for the environment. They, they couldn't be, or we'd never be able to fix anything. If you look at 8550 of the Emergency Services Act, it says that any emergency, any declared state of emergency, anyone can take evasive actions to protect lives and property. But if you go and ask the county or the state, is it okay for us to fix this road, because there's people on the other side of it that cannot transverse that roadway. They'll tell you, no, you can't do it. You got to get a permit for that, and you have to get fish and Games approval to to some de- to some degree. And permits, some of those permits start at fifty thousand dollars.
0: What? Yeah.
1: There's a there's years ago, uh, I, I and okay. I wrote about this a couple months ago or a month or so ago, okay. ten minutes on Cooper Sinanica. There's a fuel modification zone. And when I say fuel modification zone, fuel modification means that you've you've you have limited the ability of the vegetation to create a heat source high enough to do any damage. That's what it amounts to. People say, Well you use fireproof vegetation or you remove all the vegetation or you do what it because one of the key elements of fire is you got to have fuel for it. If you don't have any fuel, then you have no fire. So when you talk about fuel modification, there's a couple of things you can do. You can turn it into vegetation that's no more than three inches high, or you can sparsely plant trees that are not necessarily going to be, uh, you know, get, they're not mm-hmm. going to be ladder uh, ladder fuel. You can You can do it that way. Out on Twin Lakes, between Twin Lakes and Rimrock Road, we have had a fuel modification zone that was built in 1994. That fuel modification zone protects Anza from a fire that would come up from the valley floor, come up from Anza Borrego. That is a, it's a critical area for us because when we have a southeast wind, it comes up there, if it's on the floor at 25 miles an hour, it comes up Coyote Canyon at about 45 miles an hour. So it creates a chimney effect coming up through that canyon. If we were to have a fire that we could not stop on the valley floor, it would run over Anza because we have no way of stopping it. That fuel modification zone would be the only thing we could put equipment on fast enough to try to stop that fire. We've been trying to get $5,000 to keep that, reconstruct that fuel modification zone since 1998, and we have yet to get the money or a permit for it to, to do that. And this is a matter of public safety. The Bureau of Land Management, which has some jurisdiction on Cooper Cienega, is telling us that even though they're a federal agency, they can't get past LAFCO, or uh, they can't get past CEQA in the state to just keep their own fire line cleared up on Cooper Sienica, let alone go down to Twin Lakes and try to do anything about that fire line up there. Now, these are the kinds of things that have happened in California. The, the The management of our forests is virtually non-existent. And it's not non-existent because nobody wants to do anything. It's non-existent because you simply cannot get past the environmental regulations to do anything about it unless the thing's on fire. If it's on fire, then you can do whatever you want to do, basically, to try and stop the fire. But you're you're just you're just it's it's nearly impossible, even if you're the government, to try and resolve these things, because all these environmental agencies are appointed, and once the government, once the legislature appoints them, they can't do anything about them to correct them. They're simply uh, out there and they, you know they're basically making decisions. On what it is that we can or cannot do when it comes to uh, uh, emergency response preparedness, and yeah, you add that to limited resources, which we have limited resources uh, because we no longer have volunteers, and you don't have you don't have the firefighters of 25 years ago either. Um, those those folks were very aggressive people. They were they. Um, they were there. they wanted to put the fire out, and that that created other problems so
0: well that's an interesting statement
1: well it, it's very political in a lot of ways.
0: How is a wildfire political?
1: If a fire starts in state responsibility and it's next to federal land, if you let it burn onto federal land then the federal government will pay for it
0: Well. Uh. Okay.
1: Do I need to go any further? No, you,
0: I think you explained it.
1: Yeah. So, wow. the, These are the things that 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 you're up against, really, and and they're not getting any better; they're only getting worse.
0: So you made a statement a little earlier on. You said that uh, you're five thousand dollars in need for uh, to be able to you know to fix this fire. Firebird. Yeah, that's but but even if you had the $5,000 you couldn't because you can't get the the permission to do it. No. So, yeah. it's like it it it's it right, it just doesn't
1: exist. And you know, you if you're a firefighting agency and that's what you do, then do you really want to clear that anyway? If you if I, if I was a battalion, i give you an example of a battalion chief's uh, problems that occur during a even an ordinary season, fire season. They hire a lot of uh, temporary people to come on to fight fires, both the United States and, and uh, Cal Fire. Cal Fire probably not so much as what they used to, but they they still have seasonal firefighters You will get wives, and you will get firefighters calling the battalion chief, wanting to know when they're going to go to a fire, because they need that extra, that extra revenue.
0: Well, I'm, I'm not even going to ask what, what I'm thinking
1: now. So other states don't do this. Most of the states, in fact, there's 17 states in the United States do not have paid volunteer, paid firefighters. They're all volunteers. So they're members of the community. They're, um, you know, they grow up that way. Especially in rural America, you'll find uh, uh, volunteer, huge volunteer fire um, uh, presence, you know, throughout the United States but not in California. It's different because we've allowed, the people have allowed public service unions. This is not a right-to-work state. So you can't, you, you can't go in the office and say, I'll fight fires for $20 an hour or, or whatever it might be, because if you don't belong to that union or you don't fit that protocol, it doesn't matter how good you are, you cannot get in the door to do that job. And it's the same thing with building roads or building schools or, or anything that you're going to do for the state of California. Uh, you're going to run into this problem. Uh, most of the time, like people people say, well, you know, why does it take so long for Caltrans to fix anything, and why don't they put a passing lane on Highway 371, or why don't they? Why are these turnouts only five feet, or, and so on and so on if If one of the companies in ANSA were to bid a project to widen three seventy one and they're right here, and there isn't any one of them that's not capable of doing that job. the state would tell them that for every person that they hired out of ANSA to go help do that, they would have to hire a union worker to also match that job <laughs> They call that.
0: Oh my the state God. of
1: California actually has the audacity to call that the Fair, Fair Labor Act of California.
0: I was wondering what that was.
1: That's what that is. Okay. So you then you have the bonding issues, you know, with the exception of emergency services. You can't bond the job because it takes three—a minimum of three bonds. You have to have a bid bond, a performance bond, and a payment bond. The state will not release those bonds until two years after you have completed the work. And it, the, whatever the contract is, the bond is a hundred percent of the contract. So if, let's just say we were going to put two miles of passing lane on Highway 371, and it was going to cost five million dollars of yours and I's money, I mean, if we were going to do it, Mm -hmm. because we would try to do it as efficiently as we possibly could, they would turn around and say, well, okay, that's fine, but you need a $15,000, $15 million line of credit to post your three bonds. And by the way, you couldn't get your bond back till two years after you're done. So this is the only job you're going to be able to do in your lifetime as a non-union Company. Now the unions get around this because the union posts the, posts the bonds.
0: Pika with Anika.
2: Attention, Mountain residents. Recognizing community needs in the age of technology, the Anza Electric Cooperative is partnering with the Riverside County Information and Technology Department and Anza Community Broadcasting KOIT to distribute refurbished desktop computers for free to income-qualified residents. These desktop computers come loaded with Windows 10 and Home Office. If you're interested in seeing if you or your family member qualifies, the applications are available online at anzaelectric.org, at the Anza Electric Cooperative Front Office, at Lorraine's Pet Supply and in the box outside of the KOYT station. Once you have filled out your application, it can be scanned and emailed to fundraising at koyt971.org. It can be mailed P.O. Box 391-229, Anza, California, 92539, or handed in at Lorene's Pet Supply, the co-op office, or in the mail slot at the KOYT station. Anza Community Broadcasting K-O-Y-T is made possible by generous donations from community members and businesses like the High Country Journal. Anza's free, local, and independent newspaper featuring local news, events, advertising, and opinion pieces. Online on facebook.com slash highcountryjournal. The email address is highcountryjournal at gmail.com. And the phone number is 951-970-0074.
0: The Coyote. Listen to it. (laughs) Welcome back to Fika with Anika.
1: So, so, there's, so there's no, now there is no there is no
0: opportunity for the small business. No, no to no. do anything involved no. with the
1: state. It's it's like when you when you were asking me, well, if when we're going to build this project for the church, are we going to use local? contractors. Yes, we are. Now, you're
0: referring to the the future cemetery. Yeah. right. Mm
1: -hmm. We're going to use, yes, we are. But state law requires that they have workman's compensation insurance. It requires that they have liability insurance, and so on and so on down down the line.
0: But that's not unreasonable.
1: That's not unreasonable. Uh, it, It wouldn't be it wouldn't be unreasonable if you could get it at a reasonable price, but you but you can't. Uh, operating engineers, uh, let's just say your company's only five years old. If you have an operating engineer working for you that's got 25 years experience, you can get your workman's comp get his workman's comp down to about 20 dollars or 20.
0: Uh, yeah, 20 points.
1: Tw- yeah, but if you but. If you, but it's based on what you're paying him. So if you're paying him $45 an hour, you're just as bad off as if you were paying somebody $15 an hour and paying higher workman's comp. Liability insurance works the, same, works the same way. If you go to other states, you go to Arizona, Arizona will help you post the bonds to do that work. If you, you or I walked into the Department of Transportation, and if you go over to Arizona and you look at their highway system, and what they have there, and, and, and how they built it. You would be astounded at what they've been able to do for such a small state. But they do that because if you go in there and you go to the Department of Transportation and say, Hi, I'd like to build two miles of that road, they'll say, OK, here's an application, fill it out. Tell us how much you think it's going to cost. If you can meet that cost, you're going to get that job. Because that's not a right-to-work state. I mean, that is a right-to-work state. Anybody can go in there and work for them. I can't do that here. Hamilton School up here, when they rebuilt Hamilton School, we worked on that. There's a $35 million project. The school down in Temecula that sits on Highway 79, that's a, a parochial school, or a i've forgotten now exactly what it is but that whole school complex on the right side of the road just as just as you get uh, down there cost five and a half million dollars wait five birth versus
0: 39
1: yes 35 and it's because that was built with a contractor who is not a union contractor and of course it was paid for by the people who wanted that school. It wasn't paid for by the taxpayers. Anytime the taxpayers are involved in a project, you can automatically guarantee yourself it's gonna cost ten or fifteen times more than it would cost if it wasn't. It's just like it's just like um, if you sit on a board of directors anywhere or you you are elected to a public office for most people the, what falls over them is the absence of common sense because they're it's, no longer spending their money
0: yeah I I know exactly what you're talking about it's a uh, it's the, an interesting phenomena
1: yeah it's I, I I'm assuming that it's human nature that you know that's You know, because we're all, I mean, if it's not coming out of our pocket, but, you know, if you think about health care and you look how bad health care is, most of it's because nobody knows what they're paying for health care when you really get down to it. Employers are paying it, so the person receiving it really has no idea what it costs. But if they had to pay for that, they would not be paying, the hospitals and everybody else would not be able to charge what they charge.
0: Well, I think some people did come to realize that when uh, the Obamacare system came and mm-hmm. they started seeing what premiums actually are. Um, yeah yeah. If they and,
1: and you're right, a lot of people did because they're now getting the bill right because uh, you know at first it, it was going to supplement this and doing that, but then you know if you go to the doctor, that this wasn't covered, and every year the price goes up. So now you're out of pocket, or you're looking at it from, for subsistence from the state or somebody, you know, to help you with that cost. But well,
0: okay, things, things yeah. So going back then to emergency preparedness, and uh, just to say that a, a road washes out, uh, Coyote Can or not, yeah, Coyote Canyon, uh, Rimrock Road. That whole area up there is like just notorious for. For just, yep. you know, washing out or being inaccessible, people being, you know, stuck at home and can't get out. So how do we deal with these things?
1: you got to call. Uh, I, my advice is call a contractor and plead with him for help. See if they'll come and help you.
0: Because no one else is going to no, help.
1: they're not. And if, you, if, the, if the county of Riverside comes out and looks at it and says, well, you know, this... Uh, uh, it, number one, it's not, there, most, not most of our roads are not counting roads, so they probably wouldn't come out at all. But if they did, they would give you a litany of things that you'd have to do in order to be able to fix that.
0: So basically don't get them involved? No. No? Okay. No. That's a sad have, state of affairs.
1: We have six or eight contractors that can go out there and fix that road. And probably do it overnight. You know. When you get the bureaucracy involved in that, the first thing they do is have a meeting and then they study it.
0: Three years later,
1: <laughs> And then the answer will probably be no.
0: <laughs> oh, you're scaring me a little bit, but I and know that you I know that you've got a lot of experience dealing with the county.
1: We do. We do. We deal with them every day on these issues, and there's a lot of really good people that work for the county, really good people, and they're they're trying, you know, they try to do things to to help the people, but the bureaucracy itself is so convoluted with regulation that if you you can have the finest person in the world, and if they think their like their job could be affected by it they're not going to do anything if they it could be the most disastrous thing on the planet they will not move if they think it's going to have an adverse effect on them and you can't really blame them for that really you really can't
0: so there's only one way of dealing a situation is if you go to county is what you're saying well no you
1: you can if it's a transportation issue you can go to transportation and you know, you can talk to them about it, but we have about 1,200 miles of roads that are not county jurisdiction. We only have about eight that are.
0: Eight miles?
1: Eight, eight, eight different roads that are. Batista's one, Mitchell's one, Barman's one, Hill Street's one, um, and now Hernley, section of Hernley is.
0: Anything that's paved.
1: Anything that's paved has met that county standard or meets a Caltrans standard. Most dirt roads are not, and a lot of dirt roads don't even have the entitlement to be dirt roads. They were built in the 50s and 60s as fire roads. And then along came a subdivision prior to the subdivision MAP Act, which you didn't have to have roads back then. And they split these properties and they used those fire roads as access to those properties. Well, there's never been any easements or any entitlements to them uh, for that to become an actual roadway. There's part of Twilliger South that's that way. There's about a mile and a half where it's it's never been dedicated. And when you say dedicated, you can dedicate it, and you're required to do that in a subdivision, but the county won't accept it because it's not to their standards. If you if you actually construct the road, then um, you can ask them to accept it, but that's a you know that's a process, and, and um, now when you do a subdivision, now you have to get them to accept it. You can't sell lots in subdivision until they have. But uh, things up here, um, we only have first generation housing here, so we're not down far enough down the road for a lot of those things to occur, especially on our road system. So if you, now, I I know that most of the engineering contractors up here will come out and see you, and they will not charge anything for that, and they will give you, they will consult with you, and they will give you advice on how to fix the road, if that's what you want to do. And you can take it from there, when you're talking about private road. If you work on it yourself, then, then you, you're... Uh, You're creating some exposure for yourself if somebody, because it is people use it as a right away. And if you don't know what you're doing, and you happen to push a big rock out there, and somebody slams into it, be prepared for, you know, for that. If you get, if you want to hire a contractor to do it, Um, um, shop it around until you to get a price that you think and and uh, ask them.
0: Is this something that the average person can afford?
1: In a lot of cases they can. Most of the time it involves putting in a culvert or it involves corrective drainage. Most of the roads around here are too low as their primary. They've been graded or scraped off so much that they've turned into drainage courses and they're no longer roads. So to actually fix the road, you have to bring it up. It has to be uh, between a foot and a foot and a half above the the existing grade around it, so if both sides of the of the um, you have two properties and the road's in between it, if the road's a foot and a half above those two properties, then that road's in good shape and you can uh, you could do something with it very inexpensively to keep it maintained and in uh, you know uh, 24/7 road. If it's not and it's sitting below that, then it's technically a drainage course, and there is nothing you're ever going to be able to do to resolve that issue on a permanent basis until you lift a road up. There's just simply no way you can, you can't fix it.
0: Well, I'm just thinking of there's some, you know, uh, Cave Rock, uh, Mitchell,
1: yeah,
0: um, you know, some of these roads that you just know there's a rain event and the road just turns into snot. Yeah, and, um,
1: well you have, to put, you have to put base material on top of them, something that's relatively impervious. But they, they only require, no matter what you do to a road, whether it's concrete or asphalt or whatever it is that you do, there is no such thing of a, as a roadway that doesn't require maintenance. You have to be diligent about the maintenance of that road. And you'll see some, some people out here uh, that work on those roads constantly. They're retired and they, they, and that little spot that they've worked on, uh, it, could, it might be immaculate because they're out there the day after and they're, they're mm-hmm. it and they're repairing it and fixing it. Most people are not doing that. And then you have other people that don't want it fixed because they don't want any more neighbors. <laughs> or they don't want the traffic and the dust. Or the speed going down the down the road.
0: Yeah,
1: the first thing that happens when you improve a road and you fix it, the speed limit goes into the stratosphere.
0: Yeah, they no, just I, simply.
1: I mean, it's just it's just human nature. Of course, I can get home faster now. Until you get the little bumps in it, and then you know you either lose the suspension of your car or you slow down. One of the two. But roads are probably the most neglected thing in, in our lives, really, because we just don't see them as being all that important. Yeah,
0: but we need them, especially if there's an emergency and you need to be able to drive out. There's a snowstorm, and uh, for yeah. whatever reason, you have to get out, uh, and you just can't.
1: That's true. And
0: there's no no one will come and get you.
1: No, they won't.
0: We can well, call up... Uh, we,
1: we had a lady out on Room Rock that <clears throat> passed away some years ago. And um, the the ambulance folks, the paramedics, actually had to walk to her house to get her. It was in a snowstorm, and um, and I don't know if she would have would have survived had they gotten there, but they simply could not get there. So they had to walk walk a mile and a half to get to her house. So and you know, and we bring these things up all the time. With the with the powers that be, and you always get the you know that's such a sad story, and you know we really wish we could do something, but you know. Is it, it
0: because of the uh, there's just not enough population? It's only because <coughs> one or two homes or or uh, properties Is, are affected by by that,
1: or. Well, <clears throat> it it takes a particular type of uh, a person to um, to understand rural America. You know, I love rural America. That's that's. I mean, it's just just my passion. I grew up in rural America. I wouldn't. I would never live anywhere else. But most politicians haven't. They have no idea what you're talking about. If you told them you had a septic system in a well, they would think you were some other planet. You know, mean, like they, what is that? And, and, or what? Or what is that? Mm-hmm. And so, and we don't have the votes. And depending on where what the political um, um, climate is on on any given day, you have um, you have a dis well basically dis dislike for whoever voted against what you were thinking about. Well, we had Mary Bono. Well, let's 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 look at Jim Venable. Jim Venable was a supervisor here between '92 and '96, I think. Jim Venable spent uh, almost two million dollars here of his uh, supervisor fund. He paved the. He he was instrumental in paving the uh, uh, the community center. He he paved all of all of the museum. He actually got stuck down there. He drove his limo down there one day, and it was rain. It was in February, and he got stuck down at the corner, just as you turned into the museum parking lot. And he had to walk over there through the mud. He was not a happy guy. So he told his chief of staff, he says, You get whoever's in charge of the museum, you tell him, I want this thing paid before I come back here again And so they did. And actually we did that work. But he he instructed that to be done and he paid for that. The county paid for that. And we didn't we didn't do anything except what Jim Venable said to do, which was fix that road. It didn't matter what it cost, or right. just get it fixed, because he wanted the people of Mansa to be able to go to that museum, and he didn't want to be stuck going, going down there. And, you, and so you had a politician like that. He was very, very uh, concerned about disaster preparedness here. He was concerned about the people who lived here. He came here all the time. He would jog down 371 just to see if anybody'd come and talk to him, on occasion. And he and he had an outfit that had disaster preparedness on. Answer disaster preparedness, him and his wife. So they would wander around up here, you know, just to just to uh, mingle with the you know, mingle with the town folks because they they left rural America. They they lived up in Idaho. And then when he left, Jeff Stone. Uh, became supervisor and and that was the last financial help the community ever got. still to this day it, we don't get any any supervisor special funds up here to do much of anything so it's just it just depends on the it just depends on the uh, the person who gets elected and right. and how the community Uh, feels about him. When Mary Bono was was, uh, our Congresswoman, she was married, of course, to Sonny Bono. And um, she was a big fan of rural America. She used to come up here for our Fourth of July parades and things, and do all that. And so, you know, we had her ear on a lot of things, especially disaster preparedness and and, um, basically the state of the community. And she, had, we, when the recession came in uh, in 2009, she had carried a uh, a proposal that we sent to we wanted to send up to the administration because you know they had they were going to fund all these shovel rented jobs and all that stuff, and so um, one of our local. Uh, Folks here, and we, we finished that thing at uh, I think 10, 10 o'clock one night, and by eleven thirty, he had driven it to the desert to hand it to Mary, as she was getting on a plane to go to Washington. So she took that to Washington, and tried to get that funded. It was it was a fifteen million dollar project, and we were going to fix all these roads, and do all the, we, it had. It's and I still have it it was quite an infrastructure plan. And we were going, we had 260 volunteers that were going to work on that, that project. And we had it all all figured out how we were going to do it and whatnot. But because we, our voting record wasn't what it needed to be, she did not get, was not allowed to present that. Or so she told us. They weren't interested. Our shovel-ready job was not something they were interested in at the time. So we're we're up against that. And now, when you look at where we're at now, um, we have a, we have part of the country that sees rural America as the deplorables, which has been it's it's acquired this nickname. And you know we we uh, we carry Bibles and guns, you know. To school and all of that sort of stuff. So there's a certain amount of the um, political community that really um, is not not very uh, does not look very favorable on rural America. It's it's you know we're a nation that that has um, lost its way in a lot of ways. We're not the nation that we. Once were and in trying to get that back, I'm I'm not sure that uh, that we can at this point because there's not uh, we just don't have that drive and that desire. When you look at all of, go back to World War II and you look at two to four million people enlisted in the armed forces, you know. That was a big deal. Those people were angry, very angry, about what happened to them. I don't know that you can get that now. Get that same feeling of patriotism, and that that desire to overcome something. Like like what we probably uh, used to be able to do. It's much more difficult now.
0: Right. Well, I think we felt some of that with nine eleven,
1: and uh, we did.
0: Uh, but it dissipates you know here we are you know a decade or more later and mm-hmm. and uh, but know.
1: but not rural america you, no we, you, I mean, you go you go out to where you and i live mm-hmm. and you see american flags everywhere and if you ask somebody if they know who the president is or if they if you ask them who abraham lincoln was uh, they're not going to tell you he was a rock star they're going to tell you it was the President of the United States. Right. And they know when the War of 1812 occurred.
0: <laughs> okay, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, goodness gracious. Well, wow, I think there's an awful lot to talk about. I, I think I'm going to stop you at this point, Mike.
1: Sure. We're
0: at, at just about a, at an hour. I'd like to invite you back into the studio again. Sure. And uh, there's some other things I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about code enforcement. I know that you you work uh, and assist people with uh, code enforcement issues. Uh, I, I want to talk to you about the midnight rider, you know things like that. So, so why don't we just plan on doing it again? We can do yeah. that,
1: you know, whenever you whenever you got time.
0: Sure. So, if people have questions about uh, emergency preparedness or anything that we've talked about today, is there a way that people can get a hold of you?
1: Well, they can. Um, they can. They can go through you, or they can go through the Lions Club. Okay. Because I still consult with the Lions Club on on the things they're doing. They're really in charge of that now. So, um, I uh, you know I uh, I just do some consult- consulting occasionally when they want to talk about something. So,
0: it, it, the emergency preparedness uh, operation that you've been talking about was an actual incorporated business. Yes. yes. Okay. And the lions are now
1: yeah in charge it's, it's of that. It's a five hundred one c three.
0: Oh okay, it's a charity. Yeah, it's a okay, it's a nonprofit Yeah.
1: Okay. So it's uh yeah, and they they've taken that over now. So they're...
0: Is there a website or anything? Uh,
1: about? I don't know if they have one or not. Okay. Um,
0: so if anyone has any questions, they can uh, contact yeah contact me through. Programming at koyt971.org. Put Fika in the subject uh, line, F-I-K-A, and then in the su- in the uh, body of the text, uh, uh, put your your information or your question, and I'll get that to uh, to the appropriate people. Um, so that's that's what we'll do then. Okay.
1: Very good. Thank you for having me. Sure.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's Cup of Fika with Annika. Tune in Wednesdays at 3 p.m. and a replay on Sundays at 1 p.m. If you have any questions or comments for me or my guests, please send an email to programming at koyt971.org and put Fika in the subject line. Enjoy the rest of your day.